0: All right. Joining me now is Ted Terry. He's running for U.S. Senate in uh, in Georgia. So, uh, Ted, welcome.
1: Hey, Jake. How you doing? Thanks for having
0: me on. Uh, no problem. So, uh, first of all, uh, you're mayor of Clarkston, Georgia. Tell us a little bit about that. Um, just for folks who don't know you at all, what were you doing before you ran for mayor? How'd you? Uh, you know, you're a young guy. How'd you become mayor? Let's start there.
1: Yeah, well, I've been working uh, in politics since I was 17 years old. I've volunteered on a presidential campaign in 2000 in Florida. I've lived in Georgia for over a decade now. I've literally worked from as a field organizer, field director for a state senate campaign, worked, trained canvassers for Barack Obama's 2008 campaign, uh, fundraised for a U.S. congressman, uh, ran a statewide campaign. And I found myself in Clarkston about eight years ago. Uh, Clarkston is known as the most Ethnically diverse square mile in America, and we've been receiving refugees for over thirty plus years. So half our population is foreign born, uh, forty nationalities, sixty different languages. And um, uh, I I ran because the 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 mayor at the time was saying that we should uh, pull back our welcoming stance for refugees. Um, And thankfully, I won with fifty two percent of the vote. Um, And um, and I've been mayor the last six years now.
0: And How'd you win? So because as a young guy, I mean, you worked in politics before, but how do you get into a race uh, less likely to have big money uh, supporting you? You got more progressive positions. What was your campaign strategy that proved successful?
1: Well, number one, you just knock on doors. And I spent a lot of time knocking on doors. Clarkson's a small town, uh, so it's not a lot of votes. uh, But uh, people demand your attention uh, when you knock on their door. They invite you in. They want to know that you're with them. And uh, and I, in fact, actually, because Clarkston's so diverse, I um, you know I went to a council meeting one uh, earlier in the year um, in 2013 when I was before I ran, and I noticed that there wasn't much diversity at that city council meeting, and um, I I found out that um, there was. Um, a large Vietnamese population in Clarkston uh, who had lived there for you know, 30 uh, plus years. Uh, they were the first refugees to come to Clarkston in the early 80s. And so I translated my flyer into uh, Vietnamese. Um, I went and spoke with the elders in their living rooms. I went to the Vietnamese Baptist Church, the Vietnamese Buddhist temple. Um, and uh, you know, on Election Day in Clarkston, uh, we got one voting precinct in Clarkston. And there's always a wall of candidates uh, trying to get last minute votes. Um, uh, throughout the day. And I'll never forget, over the course of the day, mostly older Vietnamese uh, voters uh, would sort of avoid that wall of candidates, go in and vote. And as they were leaving, I remember them just kind of looking at me and giving me a wink and a nod. And I felt that I might actually win this election. Uh, and I got 52% of the vote, Cenk. Um, And so I, re- I realized that having uh, an inclusive um, and diverse campaign, one that reached out to people who don't usually get engaged, uh, was what allowed me to not only win, uh, but to really bring our community closer together.
0: Yes, uh, you know Republicans will look at that and go, "You see that they're bringing in voters uh, to vote." Uh, yeah, uh, so you should represent everybody, not just one group of people. So uh, nice work there, obviously, in getting elected back then. So now, wh- why run for the Senate at this point?
1: Well, uh, look. The largest voting block in America is the millennial voting block. 80 million Americans are uh, under the age of 35. Um, I'm an elder millennial. I'm 36 years old. Um, but uh, the the issues um, that are are on the minds of millennial voters: uh, student debt, um, affordable health care, uh, climate change, um, you know, affordable housing. Um, you know, embracing our diversity. Um, Our generation is the most diverse generation in American history. And that voice is just not being represented in the United States Senate. The average age of a senator is over 60 years old. Um, So I would bring the median age down. And look, uh, you know, the old adage of uh, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu um, is exactly true. It's what's happening in the U.S. Senate. The issues that um, our generation cares about are not being talked about. And we're not going to win in Georgia by dragging voters to the polls. We need to send them running to the polls to support candidates that represent and stand with them on these
0: important issues. And the primary there could be interesting uh, in in on the Democratic side in Georgia. Uh, so Everybody's waiting to see if Stacey Abrams is gonna get it. I'm keeping it real here, Ted, right? Um, And so I don't know if you have any more info than I know on on that. But who's in the primary now? I mean, I can't imagine that Chuck Schumer came to you and said, Mayor Terry, I I like how you're trying to bring millennials to get involved in politics. And I don't care that you don't have the most money, I'm gonna go with you cuz you seem the most progressive. (laughs) That is not a paragraph ever spoken <laughs> by Chuck Schumer. So, uh, do they have they picked their candidate yet?
1: Uh, well, I think they're focusing uh, on trying to recruit someone to run for the the Isaacson seat that's just recently going to become uh, vacant um, uh, later this year. And uh, you know, honestly, I don't know what's going to happen on the Purdue side. I'm running against David Purdue. Um, I was the second Democrat to announce. We now have four Democrats running. Um, I arguably am the most progressive candidate, and it's not just on the issues that I've staked out um, in terms of supporting a Green New Deal, uh, supporting Medicare for all. Um, but it's, it's based on what I've done as mayor of Clarkston, um, you know, and I, I, I'll never forget attending the Center for Civil and Human Rights Museum grand opening here in Metro Atlanta uh, several years ago. And there was a saying that came out of the civil rights movement, it was never attributed to one individual person, it was just the saying of a movement. And it went like this. I said, don't tell me what you believe. Show me what you've done. And then I will tell you what you believe. And that's what my campaign is all about. Um, Clarkston was the first city in Georgia to decriminalize marijuana possession. We did that three years ago. We raised the minimum wage to $15 an hour for our city employees. And we made Election Day a holiday. We did that all uh, in one council night uh, three years ago. And we've been leading by example ever since. And so I can honestly say that... um, You know, the other candidates, uh, you know, they have sort of a history of, you know, one was a Republican. um, They've come over to be Democrats. um, You know, a lot of centrist talk right now. um, But I just don't believe that we're going to engage the voters that haven't been voting if we're going to try to to run as, uh, you know, Democrat light, as with triangulated centrist messaging. And so that's exactly why I'm running um, I, I did reach out to the DSCC. I did visit them um, uh, a few days before I announced, and so you know, I've, put in, I've done due diligence. I've made an effort to have that communication, um, and as far as I know, you know, they're going to let the, the the primary play out and see how things are going so far.
0: Mm, yeah, I wouldn't count on that. Um, okay, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just keeping it real. Uh, anyway, uh, but since you uh, legalized marijuana. I assume there's chaos and uh, increased crime in Clarkston. And uh, since you increased minimum wage for government workers, obviously, uh, your city's now bankrupt, right? All that clear?
1: No, none of that's happened. Uh, in fact, that Clarkston has continued to be one of the safest cities in Georgia. There's 500 municipalities in Georgia, and we've been consistently ranked the top 40, uh, top 50 safest cities in Georgia. Uh, in fact, actually, our crime rate has um, declined over the last several years uh, when refugee resettlement and immigration went up in Clarkston under President, uh, at the end of George W. Bush administration and President Obama, the crime rate in Clarkston, the Clarkston area actually declined. Um, and so uh, I'm proud to say that actually 12 other cities in Georgia, including the big city of Atlanta, Savannah, Macon, Augusta, even the small town of Ludawisi, Georgia, have all followed Clarkson's lead, passing a decriminalization ordinance uh, covering almost a million people, protecting them from life-ruining arrests, jail time. Uh, and then, of course, you know $15 minimum wage three years ago was the minimum living wage based on what all the economists said here in metro Atlanta. The, the rent is too darn high, um, housing costs have gone up, um, transportation costs. It's just more expensive to live in Atlanta. And so as a result, our employees in Clarkston are very happy. They're very loyal, very low-turnate overrate rate um, in our city staff, um, which actually saves us money in the long run, and we have very committed uh, employees. And so for us, it's been a win-win, this has gone, the city hasn't gone bankrupt. Uh, we've grown the budget, uh, we've been able to expand and uh, increase infrastructure spending on, on green spaces, on walkability, bikeability, um, and I think Clarkson's thriving because of it.
0: Yeah, uh, by the way, it's of course not at all surprising that crime would go down. Uh, Every study has shown that uh, unfortunately, uh, the Americans that are most prone to crime are natural born citizens. Uh, They are four times more likely to commit crime than documented immigrants and twice as likely to commit crime as undocumented immigrants. So if you wanna make your uh, cities, towns and states safer, bring in refugees. Um, that's literally exactly, true. Exactly. Exactly. Yes, uh, and immigrants of any sort. So uh, now, Ted, you said on uh, Twitter today that there's a special, exciting announcement uh, on the Young mm-hmm. Turks. Uh, do we have that announcement, or is it Tada? You're running for Senate?
1: <laughs> that's right. Well, um, I am. I'm coming out in full support of Medicare for all. Um, I have uh, been, you know, the last three months I've been campaigning. I've um, gone to over two dozen counties. I've been listening to people, um, all over Georgia, from the coast, from the the mountains to rural Georgia, suburban and exurban. And um, the issue that really is at the core of my support for Medicare for All is the coming long term care crisis that we are going to find ourselves in this country. Um, I worked as a nursing assistant um, through college. I uh, saw firsthand. Uh, how difficult it is to to age um, and to so to exist in a long term term care system in this country. It's gotten worse. It's going to get more expensive. Um, it's not only uh, an issue of dignity for the for our elders, um, but it's also an issue um, of of women's um, equality. Uh, Two thirds of caregivers in this country are women, and what we're finding uh, more and more is that there will be Millions and millions more people, parents, um, family members, relatives, who will need the care of um, other family members. And it's going to be women that are going to bear the brunt of that. They have historically. And so, if we continue to have a long term care system that forces our elders, uh, mostly in the middle class, the lower class, to completely sell off all of their assets, have to go into poverty before they can get on Medicaid to afford uh, a nursing home or some semblance of home care. Um, it is going to be incredibly disruptive for the gains that women have made in the workforce um, these last few years. Uh, and the only way that we're going to keep Medicare solvent and to um, cover the upwards of 40 million people that are going to be in the long-term care system by the time I am you know, uh, you know, 30 years older um, is to have a truly universal system. We all have to pay into it. This is something that um, our country can financially sustain Um, It's going to save us money in the long run and it's gonna make sure that our elders, our mothers, our sisters, um, our aunts are gonna be well taken care of and respected.
0: All right, well, it's gonna be really interesting to see how it plays out because conventional wisdom says, "Oh my God, Georgia is a red leaning purple state. uh, And so don't do progressive ideas uh, because people in purple states love big corporations. (laughs) <laughs> I don't really believe that, obviously. <laughs> uh, but uh, Ted Terry, uh, mayor of Clarkson, Georgia, is running for United States Senate, and he's gonna test out that theory. He's gonna run on progressive yep. issues uh, like Medicare for All and see how it goes. So tedforgeorgia.com is the website, tedforgeorgia.com. And we will have the link down below if you're watching later on YouTube or Facebook, you just click on it, check out the information and donate if you can. Uh, Ted, do you take corporate PAC money?
1: No corporate PAC money, no corporate lobbyist money, just people powered. All
0: right, there you go. So, the small dollar donations make all the difference. Yes, thank you. Ted, thanks so so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Jake. Appreciate it. Wouldn't it be great if he was in the Senate instead of David Perdue and these Republicans that are so loathsome? Okay, when we come back, crystal ball. You know, I don't know if we're going to disagree. You know, Anna and I had slight disagreements earlier today. Crystal Ball has been very strong in favor of Bernie Sanders. And and I'm not positive what her point of view on impeachment is. So, a wonderful progressive. You've seen her on a lot of shows, including her own on, on The Hill. And you're going to see her in a minute when we come back. All right, back on the Young Turks. Joining me now, Crystal Ball, co host of Rising on the Hill TV. Uh, wonderful, progressive, former MSNBC anchor. Uh, so a, a meeting of former MSNBC anchors right here on The Young Turks. Crystal, how you doing? Good,
2: thank you for having me
0: on. Uh, of course, uh, thanks for coming on. Uh, so uh, Crystal, uh, let me run through the news today uh, with you. Uh, let's start really broad and then uh, narrow down. Uh, we're gonna talk about impeachment, then we'll talk about Democratic candidates. Cuz there, uh, uh, I, I know you have a strong opinion. And I'm curious to hear it. Uh, So impeachment, uh, general thoughts, yes, no, go forward.
2: Um, My general thoughts are that the Democratic Party is already doing everything they possibly can to screw this whole thing up. I mean, there are two major blunders that I see at this point. One is to focus in exclusively on the Ukraine allegations instead of looking at the entirety of his presidency. But number two is, look, if you're gonna go after this president for corruption, great, do it. But don't pretend like it's all cool and well and good that Hunter Biden was getting paid $50,000 to sit on the board of a Ukrainian energy company while his dad was vice president. Or that it was cool for him to sit on, you know, to work at a credit card issue or when, when his dad was senator from Delaware. You don't have to excuse that behavior. And what I already see in my interviews with members of Congress, um, even Elizabeth Warren got tripped up on the campaign trail on this, is people trying to excuse that ordinary, perfectly legal, but completely unacceptable level of cashing in on public service um, that the Bidens apparently engaged in, in an effort to make it just about Trump. Now, I get it. What Trump did is so much worse and illegal and awful and inexcusable, but that doesn't mean that we should... Look, turn a blind eye to the ordinary cashing in that so many Democratic have done over the many years.
0: So, Crystal, if we were both still on cable news, this is when I would shout you down and go, How dare you, madam? You are not allowed to talk about Joe Biden. That story has been debunked. So, now the reality is, of course, you're right. And so, I, I, And it's bothering me that both some progressives are viewing it as either or. Well since Biden has issues too, we shouldn't talk about Trump or impeach him. That's the strangest thing I've ever heard. But most people and in the mainstream are saying, well since what Trump has did is wrong and Biden is a beloved establishment figure, we're not allowed to talk about his son. So I don't wanna get into the stuff that Rudy Giuliani is doing about Hunter's personal life. and that's kooky and crazy and and that part is uh, uh, unacceptable. But does anyone really believe that uh, Hunter Biden was getting paid $50,000 a month because he is a specialist on Ukrainian gas?
2: Yeah, so for context, I looked up the uh, folks who sit on the board of Exxon, which is the world's largest energy company. And these are CEOs of Fortune 100 companies that sit on this board. And they were making less <laughs> than Hunter Biden on the Ukrainian energy company board. So look, it's absurd. And again, there's no reason to justify it. Now, look, I happen to think that because they chose to impeach him on this particular thing, it's gonna be a disaster. I mean, it is so Hillary Clinton 2.0, where we try to make the case that you know we're the lesser of two evils and Trump, because he's completely unapologetic and brazen, people actually like that he puts his corruption in their face, rather than running around as a moralist and acting like he's perfect and he's running on his values as Biden is doing. And so then you end up with this lesser two evil scenario again, and we know how it turned out last time.
0: Right, so that's why I agree with what you said right in the beginning. This uh, impeachment inquiry should not be narrow, it should be broad. And so one, as a matter of strategy, why would you foreclose all other opportunities when Donald Trump seems to have committed several crimes? Number two, why would you say, hey, even though he committed campaign finance violations by paying hush money, I don't wanna talk about it. That'll make it seem like Donald Trump didn't do it, that's what Donald Trump will say. So it's just. Well, that strategy is so bizarre, Crystal, that it leads me to having to ask you the next question. What's going on with Nancy Pelosi and Democratic leadership? There's now a second whistleblower saying, I have evidence of Donald Trump meddling with the IRS and the audits, etc. And it seems like Richard Neal, the head of the House Ways and Means Committee, doesn't wanna hear it. And he also didn't want Donald Trump's New York state tax returns. Why are they desperate not to investigate his business ties?
2: Right. I I couldn't tell you Tank. I really couldn't. I, and here's the thing. There's been so much dithering around the question of impeachment. Is anyone surprised that this guy was acting illegally and trying to dig up dirt on Joe Biden? I mean, he came into office on a pledge to make good on political vendettas with locker up. We have known from day one how corrupt this individual was. I mean, he was shilling for his golf courses on the campaign trail, right? None of this is anything new. And yet there's been so much dithering and such a failure, frankly, to make the case to the American people that he was fundamentally unfit. Now, here's the other thing that I would say and that I would argue is that when you ask Regular people, what they care about in terms of the destruction of this presidency, we tend to get very spun up. And I understand why. And the media gets certainly very spun up on these sort of, you know, breaking the norms and guardrails of democracy. Right. He shouldn't have said that to Jeff Sessions. He shouldn't ask Corey Lewandowski to do that. He shouldn't have said that to the Ukrainian president. True. All of it. But what they are actually focused on is the real harm that he's done to human beings in this administration. So institutionalized cruelty at the border, kids locked in cages and permanently orphaned, by the way, in certain cases, the Muslim ban, right? I could go on and on about the real harm that this president has done. How about fostering the greatest domestic terrorist movement in the country with white nationalists and the violence that they've caused? To me, those are part of the case that should be made here if you're going to move forward with impeachment. Now, I do think it's a bit of a trap because you know how this works with the media, jank. As much as we want to keep talking about, you know, should we have a wealth tax, Medicare for all, Green New Deal, all of these things will get pushed out to focus in on this one question around Ukraine. And it will leave a lot of Americans feeling like they are not having their issues spoken to and addressed as we focus on this issue with Ukraine. So it's kind of a trap that Democrats are in right now.
0: Yeah, so I don't know if it's a slight disagreement or not, uh, but um, it's not like Democrats were gonna do that anyway. <laughs> they weren't gonna vote on uh, the wealth tax or Medicare for all. They weren't gonna push McConnell to do that. The Democratic leadership is opposed to Medicare for all and Green New Deal. So. In that green case,
2: dream.
0: yeah, green dream or whatever, as Nancy Pelosi calls it, <laughs> uh, it's only supported yes, but, by. It's only supported by. I would
2: by say the plans that the candidates were putting out; those were breaking through. I mean, we had you know huge debates on CNN about climate change, seven hours town hall on CNN. Like, I never thought I would see such a thing, right? We had um, a wealth tax proposal come out from Warren and now from Sanders that got a lot of coverage. We've had plans around increasing unionization, dealing with income inequality. We actually have had some of that stuff breaking through from the presidential candidates. And now all of that is gonna go to the wayside and it's gonna be all about this one question around Ukraine.
0: Yes, again, I don't know that I agree with that. It's up to the presidential candidates to insist on their policy positions. They always like act like wilting flowers, like, oh golly gee, I guess there's nothing I could do about this. No, you could forcefully make your case, as obviously some progressives do. Which leads me to the question of, of the hour, really. People are beginning to ask Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren. And you guys have done some segments on rising on that. I think you've been fairly clear, but I'm gonna ask anyway. Uh, do you think there's one candidate clearly better than the other among progressives?
2: I do. And there's a lot of parsing of um, Sanders and Warren's positions, right, which I think is completely fair, right? We're looking at who's going to do what, et cetera, and what their track records have been. Um, the piece in terms of policy that I think is significant is Sanders has a tendency to prefer universal solutions. So if you're talking about Medical debt. You're talking about rent control. You're talking about canceling student debt. It's universal solutions. Warren tends to prefer a means-tested approach. So, if you look at her childcare plan, if you look at her student debt plan, etc., it's a means-tested approach on um, housing as well. Now, what we know from history is that means-tested approaches get demonized by the right as welfare, and they get politically destroyed. There's a reason why Social Security and Medicare are the most popular social welfare programs we've ever had in history and some of the most successful in the world. It's because they're universal. So they can't be demonized. You can't pit people against each other. You can't say they're for this group and not for that group. They're universal, and so they're popular. They're popular. So that's one difference that I think is significant. But the part that I think is even more important is— how they're going about running their campaigns and making their case and what it says about the way that they would govern. So to me, when Elizabeth Warren goes to the Democratic establishment and courts them and says I'll be a team player, I find that very distressing because this is the team, frankly, that brought us NAFTA. This is the team that brought us TPP. This is the team that brought us Wall Street bailouts with no accountability. This is the team that brought us triangulation and counter scheduling, right? That's the team that you're going to be a team player on. And you know, as well as I do, that they're only going to let change go so far. I happen to think that the Democratic Party doesn't just need reform, it needs a hostile takeover. So, you know, when I asked Senator Sanders in our interview, are you an existential threat to the Democratic Party? And he says, well, in a way, yes, I am. That's to me, what we need for the scale of the problems that we face right now and the level of corruption and ineptitude that exists in the current Democratic Party. So look, I like Elizabeth Warren. I begged Elizabeth Warren to run in 2016 instead of Hillary Clinton. Um, I admire her greatly. I think she's tough. I think she's smart. I think she's way better than you know almost any other of the candidates. But is there a difference and does it matter? Yeah, I think there is.
0: Yeah. So one more question, Crystal, to go down that path. So the argument is, yes, I hear what you're saying, and by the way, just to be clear, I'm enormously sympathetic to what you're saying. But people say, well, look, Elizabeth Warren gets things done. She got the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau passed when she wasn't even a senator. And when the Obama, we know for a fact the Obama administration was opposed to it, and she bent them to her will. So. That is pretty stunning, and so a lot, and you mentioned a lot of the ills with the Democratic Party, the bank bailouts, TPP, etc., but she's been opposed to all of those things. So does it, does her track record of getting things done impress you, and, and could that make a difference? Cuz at the end of the day, we have gotta pass the bills. And so if she's sure. going to be good at strategizing to pass those bills, can that be an advantage that she has?
2: At the end of the day, what you need is a grassroots, multiracial, working class coalition to force the so called leaders in Washington to do their bidding. That's the only thing that works. And so, yes, Elizabeth Warren has a deeply impressive resume, but I would also say a lot of that opposition was before she came to Washington. And when she had a choice in 2016 to stand with progressives, when we had a real chance of offering a candidate who really could have beaten Donald Trump, she decided to stand with Hillary Clinton. And I think that that was a real turning point. It was certainly a real turning point in my um, view of the way that she was off operating in Washington. And again, I understand the choice. It was pragmatic. Hillary Clinton at that point, it was clear she was gonna get the nomination and Elizabeth Warren I'm sure thought. If I line up with her, maybe I can get into the administration, I can do good, right? I, I know that the motives are, are good there. I believe that. But it was still a choice to line up behind the neoliberal consensus that has devastated so many American communities, so many working class families, and in favor of a sort of political calculus. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I think you know I think that says something about the way she would govern and how far she'd be able or willing to go.
0: Yeah, and look, I want to clarify: she did not endorse Hillary Clinton during the primaries until Bernie Sanders had lost. But at the same time, Crystal's point is well taken because it also goes to her theory of change: work within the system rather than fighting the system, and so. And so that's the decision that Democratic voters are going to have to make. That's exactly right. Yes, and so it's fascinating to see how it's going. It's it's great that we have this embarrassment of riches among progressives, choices we've never had in our lifetimes. So that's a wonderful thing overall. But there are hey, beginning.
2: Can I can I say one thing? I just wanted to offer you some shameless flattery, which is I watched your interview before me with that candidate, and I just. The first time I was on with you, the first time I met you was when I was a candidate. Nobody believed in me. Nobody knew who I was. Everybody thought I was this joke of a 28 year old, which, you know, in certain ways I was. But you gave me a chance to make the case. You've always done that. And I just want to say, like, it means a lot and it makes a big difference. So thank you for doing that.
0: Crystal, uh, that means a lot to me. I really appreciate you saying that. We're trying to give uh, outside voices. an arena here, a platform, a way to get their voice out. And we've been doing it for a long time, we continue to do it, and we've taken a lot of flack for it. <laughs> and so I appreciate you saying that. But I, I want everybody to check out Rising, that's Crystal's show on, on hill.tv. Because they're doing the same thing, they're giving outside voices a chance. Uh, And obviously coming at it from a very different perspective than the mainstream media and probably the reason why we're both not on MSNBC anymore. (laughs) It all works out, (laughs) (laughs) That's right. All right, Crystal, thank you so much for joining us, really appreciate it. Thanks, Jake,
2: have a good night.
0: You too. All right, guys, we got a great uh, post game coming up for you guys this last half hour of the Young Turks. uh, And uh, we're gonna have some fun. Uh, Devin Nunes talks about Donald Trump's genitalia. Uh, why is he doing that? Uh, and then uh, Civil War within Fox News. Uh, they're starting to get get uh, at each other's throats. So that's super fun. Uh, members will get to see that first today. TYT.com slash join and become a member. We'll see you there in a minute.